Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. Conversations on key issues and new developments in financial services in Ireland. Welcome to the Matheson Podcast on the Central Bank's Individual Accountability Framework. The long-awaited bill has been published by the Department of Finance. And we're going to spend some time today with uh, two very esteemed colleagues of mine, Brian Dunn on the employment side and Neve Holland in our financial institutions group and myself, Joe Bichel, to talk through the bill, to talk through uh, the regime, what it means for you, what you need to do uh, and really what's coming up because it's quite something, I think, quite a challenge for everyone. But I did say it's a long awaited bill. The actual black and white letter laws has come out at last. Although it's been long awaited, it's still only the start of the process. So maybe Neve, if you don't mind, What's next? Um, we got this famous bill. Where's it going to go? How's it, how long is it going to take? What are the steps and so forth? Yeah, thanks, Joe. So we're now kind of at the end of what they call the drafting phase. So we have the, the publication of the draft bill. And really the next steps from the legislative process is that the bill will be initiated. So that is where it is presented uh, by the minister to the houses of the Oireachtas for the legislation to be debated both in principle and in detail. So what do I mean by that? Well, once initiation has closed and the bill has been presented, it then moves to a thing called second stage, which is a limited amount of time allowed to members to kind of actually debate the principles, if you like, of the law. Once it's passed through that point, you then move to committee stage. And this is the real detailed part where a line by line, section by section analysis is prepared. Members have unlimited time to debate the detail of the proposed bill. Amendments can be put in place. So they are submitted to the Iraq the Select Committee before those committee stage meetings occur. And all the members have time to present their amendments and to discuss those with the minister. And that actually moves on. That is as long as or as short as it needs to be. As I say, it's not time limited. It is the detailed analysis. And at the conclusion of the committee stage debate, there's then a report written which kind of reflects any amendments or any discussions that have happened and how that will actually impact the bill itself. So once successfully through the committee stage, it moves to what we call report stage. So this is the very last opportunity for members to make amendments to the bill. This, however, is limited and members can only speak twice to any amendment that they want to make at this stage, which is in contrast to the previous committee stage. And then once you're through report phase, you're then into the fifth and final stage, which is the bill actually being passed by both houses. So there's a lot of component parts to that, but we understand obviously that there has been, you know, significant amount of impetus to get this bill through. So it would be expected that it will be presented to the House in early September with a view to trying to get it through each of these stages in as an efficient and effective manner as possible throughout the end of 2022, possibly into the beginning of 2023. But we had we had the heads of bill last year and then there was sort of pre-legislative scrutiny and so forth. I mean, my sense is that there's been a lot of talking behind the scenes, as it were. Do you think there really be, I know there's a process, but are we expecting there to be many changes or, or is it likely to sort of go through pretty much as we see it? I mean, yes, this is a really interesting point. This is kind of the, the practicalities of it, right? So we've kind of outlaid the architecture and as I say, Part of the drafting phase, which is the piece before the publication of the bill, is pre-legislative scrutiny, is discussion and engagement. And of course, we do need to remember this is an enhancement in many ways of regimes that are already in place in Ireland. So this is not, you know, starting from a blank piece of paper. It has been talked about for quite some, some time. So I think what you can expect and what firms and individuals can expect is there will be consultations ongoing uh, in parallel to the strict legislative process that I have spoken about there. So this isn't the last opportunity, I suppose, for firms to actually contribute into it. And there will be discussions around the bill feeding into kind of the crucial committee stage, right? So that's where the amendments are affected. So we would say to, to both firms and individuals who are interested in this area to read the bill and to kind of, you know, keep an eye out for a launch for department consultations and discussions on this. 
Yeah, but I suppose, I mean, it's fair to say that a lot of political capital has been invested in, in publishing this, if you like. So I think people need to be realistic in terms of how much anything's going to change. I mean, maybe some tweaks can be done, but it's not going away. It's here to stay. You know, it's been, you know, requested by the, the regulator, been endorsed by the department and the minister and so forth. So, I mean, this regime is coming and people need to prepare for it. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I say. And, and the headlines on this have been well flagged, well flagged in advance. We've all been talking about them for a considerable period of time. Yeah. So I think the core messages, as you say, are, you know, prepare from now. You do have a, you know, you have a good basis to start assessing and we'll talk to a little bit to that later. But as I say, I wouldn't necessarily say the door is closed or the ink is dry. You know, that it is actually worth participating if you if you do have views in any consultations that happen between now and I said that crucial committee stage. And overall then in terms of the time, I mean, like when, I mean, obviously nobody knows for sure, but I mean, it does seem to be a priority. So does that mean it'll be done by year end or is that Q1 next year? Does anyone have a sense of when it'll become the law of the land? And then then after that, what, what are the next steps? Because I think the central bank has a role then. It doesn't just get signed into law and away you go. I think this is an important step the central bank has to take before it goes live, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's fair to say both from the central bank's perspective, but also just in general, it has been indicated that, you know, there is a hope if not an expectation that the bill will kind of get through either towards the end of this year into early next year, allowing for all sorts of other externalities, etc. No one has a, a particularly detailed crystal ball, but that would be the intention. So I think then what you would allow at that point is that, it, you know, the bill gets signed in once it's passed by both houses and signed by the president. So then you have to allow some time for the central bank to obviously adopt its guidelines, its rules and its and to communicate its, you know, black and white, as you put mm. it, actually expectations to firms. So I would probably allow for somewhere between a June to September, potentially next year, for this to actually be live, looking at it from this standpoint. And you mentioned um, some sort of formal department consultation, but there will undoubtedly be a central bank consultation. I mean, they've been, in fairness to the bank, they've been quite open in, in, in a number of different speeches over the past probably 18 months in relation to their views on this and how it'll pan out. And they've certainly flagged that you know, they're preparing their own guidance and so forth and they'll have a consultation. So I guess there's an opportunity there to feed in as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we get into the finer details and the practicalities in that consultation as well. So it's a slightly different type of consultation sometimes in the, in the types of questions it seeks to answer and the clarity that it provides to firms. A lot more about the how and how do we demonstrate and how do we meet expectations is what you would expect to see in central bank guidance. And that would be the lens through which we So that'd be the real meat. The, exactly. The meat the meat's exactly. in the central bank. Yeah, I mean, that's, exactly. that's where, the, 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 to use the cliche, the rubber hits the road on that one. Like. Yeah. And maybe that's a good segue into... And maybe just recapping on, like, what's this all about? Like, I mean, we it's the individual accountability framework is the, the broad umbrella. Then within that, there's the senior executive accountability regime or SEER. People often talk the whole thing as, as SEER, but... Do you mind just taking us through kind of the headline, the headline changes? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple of, as you say, component parts to this, all well flagged, very well socialised at this point. I said, they, while we do refer to it as the individual accountability framework, that is because that there are changes here to Part 3C, for example, the Central Bank Act. So there are enforcement what, and investment. Part 3C, what's that do? Yeah, so what's that that's, about? <laughs> that's the investigation and enforcement powers okay. of the Central Bank. So that is, a, if you like, a technical component as to how this is actually enforced what the rules and procedures are, et cetera, when, when it comes to actually the accountability piece, right? And actually, it's a dual pillared piece of legislation, actually, because when you take a step back, there's no point in ascribing rules to individuals, if you like, and trying to make them accountable, and then for the central bank potentially not to have the ability to enforce. So that's something that came through in the heads of bill. It's discussed quite a bit in the expansionary notes. 
So it's kind of worth remembering that, you know, there are kind of two parts to this. The regulator is, is, is making it easier for them to enforce the rules or? or well, probably or? the word I'd use, Joe, is kind of clearer, right? Okay. So like if we take, for example, the, the and we can come back to it and it's worth having a discussion on it, the participation link. This was a, right, a key flag area for most firms and individuals when they were reading the heads bill, for example, which is up till now, the central bank had to fine against the firm before they would have actually reached into members concerned with the management. So any individual that was, you know, directing mind yeah. or involved or participated. So this is actually now broken in the new bill. So that kind of precondition of, you know, ensuring an enforcement action against a firm is now not a prerequisite to a, an individual, if you like, being pursued for breach of standards. So this is particularly interesting as well in terms of when you have things like the conduct rules. I know Brian's going to talk about that a little bit more later. You know, it's the enforceability of conduct rules against individuals as well. That's a very different framework than what the central bank has had at the moment. So probably the words I would use is increased clarity and more explicit in terms of what the process is and how the central bank might go about enforcing that against and a number of a number of senior officials at the central bank have. I'm not sure if they've been at pains to point out, but they've certainly said quite clearly that their main focus on the new regime is is supervisory, if you like, and isn't enforcement. Do you buy that? Do you believe that? I do, yeah. And they, they, sorry, they've repeatedly said it, and as you've said, they've, they've put out a lot of statements on this recently. And if we flip to the other pillar, so we opened with the enforcement pillar as an explanation as to why we're not just calling this SEER, yeah. but to move to the SEER pillar, right? if you actually look at the core component parts of what SEER is supposed to do, it does two things. It talks about the inherent and the allocated responsibility to individuals, making those clear and explicit, putting in reporting on those roles, making sure there's what we call kind of dual flow communications. So communications down into the team, back all the way up to the board, just to make sure that like decision making is identified and managed. And then each regulated financial service provider, so each regulated firm, that's within the scope of the bill, they actually have to put out statements of responsibility as well. So they give you the macro view. So if you're thinking about sophisticated supervision, and Ireland has a very sophisticated financial service sector that has been through essentially a tsunami of regulatory change over the last 15 mm. years, you are now looking at actors and firms who you know understand their jobs, they're very, very clear about what's happening, who they're working with, how particular decisions are made. That enhances the overall supervisibility of firms. So if you said to me, you know, the core tenant of this legislation is focused on that. Well, that actually speaks to supervision and not enforcement so much. Enforcement speaks to, and the, the changes that are in the bill from an enforcement investigation perspective, speak to that kind of credible threat, right, of enforcement yeah. and making sure the architecture is there. But the day-to-day, -day, the meat of the legislation is actually all about how individuals and firms interact in the execution of their decisions day-to-day. -day. So as, as you said, uh, picking up on what you said there, you talked about some inherent responsibilities. So I guess an obvious example is the CFO will have to do the accounts. Yeah. It's obviously inherently part of that role. And some others, I think, will be pretty obvious. I think the central mm -hmm. bank will spell it out. And some of the prescribed ones, then I guess the central bank will come out with a list. But but I think some changes there might be interesting because they're talking, talking about things like, you know, somebody would have to be responsible for ESG. Somebody would have to be responsible for culture. So there are potentially some quite naughty topics there where clients might have to struggle a bit because maybe it's not good. This is all around an individual responsibility in one person. And often these roles aren't necessarily assigned to one at the moment. And that might be a particular challenge. But maybe, Brian, if I don't mind bringing you in, we know that the model being adopted is, is following largely, although not exclusively, the similar regime in the UK. I know in talking to your clients who have operations in the UK, how has it come down? It's there, there a couple of years this idea of individual responsibility, roles being prescribed, maps being prepared, 
supervisors supervising and using them. How's it gone down? From talking to the clients in the UK, their experience is a lot like what we're seeing with clients now. Back then, when the SMCO was proposed in the UK, there was a lot of initial apprehension and anxiety around what it would actually mean for both the firms and the individuals. And that's what we're seeing with clients now. There's a lot of concern around what this will involve. But actually, when you and I spoke to a lot of clients in London, maybe two or three years after the regime was in place, what was really interesting was how a lot of them did reach a point where they were actually quite comfortable with it. And even on a personal level, some of the very senior people were saying, while I was nervous about this, now I actually like the idea that I know where the book stops with me. I know what my job is. There's no risk that somebody else can say, well, actually, Brian was in charge of that. I thought Brian and Joe were looking after that. Everybody now knows what they're responsible for. And as long as they do their job, they know they're OK. And if somebody else messes something up, well, then it's that person's responsibility. So that that was an interesting development in it. Yeah. And I, I, I often wonder, and I think that the consistent feedback from the UK is that it's, it's kind of gone down well and there's been mm. lots of independent surveys that have, have done that. It's not just industry bodies or the regulator, if you like. But I often wonder, and I, I don't want to sort of harp on about the enforcement piece, but conspicuously there's been no enforcement in the UK of that regime. I mean, there's obviously other enforcement, but there hasn't been any of that. And I just wonder whether the view would be quite so sanguine, if you know what I mean, if, if there had been lots of cases. Yes, I agree. But it does seem that the, the UK firms put a huge amount of time into this and getting it right. And perhaps it's because they were one of the, the earlier jurisdictions doing this. So they didn't have other countries and other parts of their group that they could work from. And we, you know, you and I, we spoke to one client in particular who had spent, I think, two or three years working on this project alone. And when we asked him, what would he do differently? His immediate answer was, I would have started earlier, which kind of shows the risk in underestimating the amount of work involved in this. Um, and what's been interesting for us over the last couple of years is there are a lot of clients who actually want to get started on this, but they've been kind of stuck in limbo for the last, certainly the last year or two, waiting for the legislation to come out because it, it's hard to really get the momentum on something until you have the final detail and can can roll out the plan. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, resources are always scarce and there's always a pile of priorities, if you like. Yes. And then it's, it's, is it a this year project? Is it a next year project? Is it inevitable that people exactly. have to ask management, if you like? Maybe, Neve, if I could turn to you in terms of maybe talking to some of the changes, some of the, the challenges of implementation, because I think in one way, when you read some of the speeches from the, from the central bank, they're, they're saying things like, well, you know, there'll be an overlay, an overlap or a consistency between the existing PCF regime and the accountable persons type. So that's kind of similar. Conduct standards are things that people will be doing anyway, almost saying that downplaying it in a way. But but I think there are significant challenges. And you might want to speak to some of them, if you like, in terms of uh, how you see it in, in reality. Yeah, no, I think sorry, I think that's true to say. So, I mean, there's a point you raised earlier on about, you know, someone, an individual being allocated responsibility for ESG, for example. Right. So for most of the firms that we talk to, right, ESG is actually quite large on their agenda. And it's likely that there's two or three people have been involved in it. And also that that's been an evolved position as well. So over the last three to five years, depending on client need and regulatory horizon changes, you know, two to three people in each firm are probably taking on parts of that responsibility. So one of the one of the first challenges on this is the mapping exercise, right? What is each individual involved in? What are they doing? Who are they doing it with, right? Is that the right structure or was it just that, you know, 
Neve and Joe decided to take that on together because they quite like working with each other and it was a project to take on. So, you know, there is a big difference between, you know, understanding what has evolved as practice and works well in a firm versus if everyone is to, you know, be accountable and clear and transparent on it, what that actually looks like. And I suppose I wouldn't underestimate the amount of workshopping discussions and actually mapping that it takes for a whole firm to produce both its required if you like macro overview, but also then for individuals to get happy and to get comfortable in terms of what it is their role is. Are they sufficiently resourced? Are they over-resourced? Right. So there's, there's a couple of pieces around that. The second point as well, and it probably comes back to sophistication in both the regulatory regime, but also of firms, which is that you're right. You know, we've had fitness and probity for a very, very long time and there's enhancements or additions to the fitness and probity regime here. The conduct standards mirror in many ways a lot of the principles that we've seen from sectoral legislation, whether that's coming out of CRD for banks or it's coming out of MIFID for investment firms or the, the insurance regimes. So again, these are themes we've seen before, but possibly not as explicit. So there is also a, an exercise to say, well, what are we as a firm doing today? Because you could be doing a lot of this, but you may not have it mapped and codified in a way that's envisaged in the bill. So it's taking the time out and step out to say, well, actually, we do have other pieces of regulation to comply with. We have, you know, interactions with our clients and our customers and obligations to them also. So trying to get, a, you know, those three pillars to coalesce in a way that's coherent and cogent will also take time for firms. So I wouldn't underestimate from a practicality perspective, you know, the amount of time that it takes, again, to make sure that you're happy from a compliance and risk perspective, that you're meeting each and every one of your regulatory obligations, which all speak to a degree to conduct, to organisational design, and also that you're communicating those to your own clients who often are regulated firms themselves. So again, you need to be aware of that. But and right. we, we saw also in the UK that when the firms there were getting their responsibility maps and statements of responsibility ready and sent them into the relevant regulators, something like 70% of them came back as incomplete or inadequate. So even with the amount of time and effort that went into them, the regulators still pushed back. So it's an even bigger task than perhaps people thought at the time. Yeah, and the central bank have indicated that they will provide guidance, and you'd you'd hope that they, if you like, start from where the UK left off, if you know yeah. what I mean, and and, and that it's good guidance, but it remains to be seen. I mean, in terms of reflecting on this, I often think about the apparent difference, if you like, or dichotomy between individual accountability and governance and best governance practice, because. A lot of the time, you know, we have boards, we have subcommittees, we have various different group structures, if you like, to try and get away from an individual. And these kind of group, you know, committees are there to sort of diffuse decision making to make sure that it isn't down to just one person. So I don't know if did you have a view on how does governance, which requires various different committees right up to the board, line up with individual accountability? How can you have both? How does that work, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, let's take your ESG, for example. You have a committee of tier five who are leading the ESG, but how does it happen that one person is responsible? And that is to say is the million dollar question, Joe. Um, so that's the, you know, ultimately we've we've probably stepped through aspects of this that are different, which is, as I say, the, the documentation, the mapping, the allocation of inherent uh, responsibilities and how you work with others. But that speaks to it almost in a bubble. Because obviously the organisation of the firm governance and risk frameworks is something that regulated firms have been dealing with, continue to deal with, right? So there are overlaps, for example, in terms of how IAF would be implemented and a firm's operational resilience structure. You know, you go from framework to write in the detail, how does the firm survive from an operational resilience perspective when there's an external shock? And that naturally in and of itself involves a lot of people from a multidisciplinary and multifaceted working groups, project teams 
And there is also an element as well, and, and this is something actually that came up in the Fund Management Committee governance from the central bank, which is that, you know, they put in a series of roles for fund managers. But again, there's always the responsibility up to the board. And there is an onus on firms to be very, very clear about what responsibility lies where. So that is actually in the theme of this legislation. So part of the communications is not just about what Neve is responsible for, but actually what Neve's several committees are responsible for and who they're responsible for those with. So I think organically what will come out of this, and it will be very helpful to get guidance because this will be particularly challenging, is for areas where you actually, you know, you don't want silo decision making or individual decision making. Actually, by their nature, you want, you know, challenge, you want dispersed decision making. How that actually works and how you map that as part of, if you like, the oil for the engine of the firm. So that will be a particularly interesting challenge. But probably what I'd say to firms at this point is this is something you are doing already. So you can actually probably start with your dispersed governance structures and say, well, actually within those component parts, what are the decision points? And then who has ownership for those decision points? And if it happens to be one or two or three individuals, then you're into the issue of allocation, an allocation of responsibility and not direct responsibility pertaining to one particular individual. So this is one I think that will be really interesting to see how it actually materialises over the next two to three years. But you're right in that, you know, what you don't really want is inertia. Yeah. And I think, I mean, documenting this to a level that will satisfy a regulator, I think is going to be a challenge. I mean, to a certain extent, perhaps the person to take their ESG example, where there's three or four in a committee and somebody's leading it, they're going to be first amongst equals in a way. And and if they're chairing the committee, they're going to have to, I think it seems to me the role would be maybe you're not across every single detail because different people are doing different bits, but you have to understand how it all works mm-hmm. and how it all pulls together, how it's you know properly you know, constituted and properly resourced and all that. So I think documenting that will be a challenge. And then I think, you know, the legislation and the rules will, will will speak to delegation and supervision and oversight of delegation. I think how firms do that and document that all the way down, because I think what I found over the past, like we're talking about over the last two years now, two or three years, mm. discussion tends to be at just the senior executive level. It's called the senior executive accountability regime, Sierra. I mean, that's kind of natural. But for that to work, it really has to go all the way down the organisation to every level because it's sort of a pyramid. Everybody builds up their their bits to, to the top, if you like. So it seems to me that, that that the implementation challenge will be a significant one to drive some of these changes all the way down. It might be easy enough, relatively speaking, to start at the top. I'm the head of finance. I'm responsible for finance. That's pretty clear. But what do all the other people below have to do in order to allow me to sign off these things or, or do my role and so on. I don't know, Neve, maybe. Yeah, no, I, I, Brian is right, you know, when he says that for a lot of firms, they've been participating in this, but they haven't, you know, pressed the go button or the commence button on their projects because it hasn't actually been clear what they need to do. But one of the things that we know has started and that firms can actually look at from today is awareness throughout the organisation. You know, and it comes down to kind of a couple of of principles, which is what is expected. You know, people will have the very valid question, is there anything here for me to be worried about? You know, in the morning, will I walk in and, you know, will my role be in half or will it be quadrupled or, you know, and it's just about getting that while this does speak for the first time in many ways to a direct individual responsibility, we can't step away from the fact that what we are engaged in in financial services broadly lots of time is a team sport. And it's just how individuals play within that and kind of demonstrate their aspect or their allocation of that decision making. But you can absolutely and should start actually dispersing knowledge, training and awareness from the bottom up. There is an upside to firms as well in doing that, which is that 
a lot of very, very good behaviours are inherent in firms. A lot of very good practices organically develop in firms. Often there's a little bit of a lag between them developing and them making their way all the way to procedures, but that's just as a, as a result of a good governance process. But the capturing that and capturing those ideas at this point will really, really help when you're trying to actually populate the best ways to streamline decision making, either at an individual level or at the macro firm level in terms of management responsibility. So, you know, having an open dialogue from this point on about what this means, what this means with the firm and actually how you go about your standard operating day will actually be beneficial from here on in. So, I mean, it, I mean, I think that's a great point and it does illustrate to me how it's going to be a whole firm project. And mm. as I said at the outset, it's not going to be led by just compliance or just HR or just ops. Really, it's a CEO led project, I think. And the CEO office is going to have to mm. take this by the scruff of the neck and, and really lead it because and that's why I wanted to mention that point with the whole organisation. It isn't just the senior management thing. It's going to have to affect the whole firm, which, of course, is what the Central Bank wants. It wants behavioural change and wants, it wants sort of permanent shift in attitude, permanent shift in things. But in terms of shifting things, I mean, Brian, employment law always figures this. Is that is this, it's going to cause a big disaster? Like, are people going to get upset? We're very litigious in Ireland. Is there going to be litigation here? Or how do you see that panning out? Hey. There is a lot for employers to get their head around here. And so far, I suppose we've been talking about this in the context of regulated firms and compliance in that sector. But if you look at this from the pure perspective of an employer, or if you're a HR director listening today, asking, well, what do I need to do? What does this mean for me? There's actually not a whole lot in the new legislation that is different to what we saw in the general scheme last July. It's all broadly as flagged back then. The two main aspects for employers are the SEER, which we've been talking about, and then the conduct standards, which we haven't really mentioned much on to date yet. In the initial probably two years of all the consultation around this, all the focus was on the SEER. In fact, I think people generally call it SEER. They forget that SEER is one quarter of the overall thing. And it's only when the general scheme came out last year and we saw the detail of the conduct standards that people began to talk about the conduct standards and think about it a little bit more. And from my angle as an employment lawyer, and if I was a HR director, actually, that's the bit that's going to be even more time consuming and more problematic to deal with day to day once this regime is up and running and you're living within the regime, so to speak. Like the SEER piece, yes, there's a lot of work in that. For example, the exercise in drawing out the responsibility maps and the statements of responsibility, as Neve said before, people will ask, well, is my job going to be divided in half overnight? So there's a couple of angles there. If it involves pinning down what people do. In so many organisations, that evolves naturally or dynamically. And there will be scenarios where people say, well, it's not strictly speaking part of my job description, but I've kind of always looked after it. But I'm not prepared to have put my neck on the line for it now as part of a statement of responsibility. So I no longer want to be in charge of that piece. Somebody else is going to have to take that. And then you can have the flip side of that as well, where somebody might say, well, it's never formally been part of my job, but I've always been in charge of that. And I have 100 people reporting in, into me in that area and it feeds into my bonus or my promotion prospects. So if you take that off me, that's a significant demotion. And you could be raising issues of constructive dismissal there. And we're not just speculating here. We're aware of one particular organisation that was proactive enough to start on this journey about three years ago. And in their keenness to get this right, they actually triggered a number of collective grievances from senior managers who who were pushing back on this, saying, you are clipping my wings, you are taking some of my responsibilities off me. So it's not an easy exercise. If you were setting up a bank today or an insurance company today, 
it's very easy to pin down the statement of responsibility because you're bringing in new people. But of course, we're applying this to people who are in the existing role for many number of years. And that's a very different exercise. And even then, once you do have the statements of responsibility up and running, you have to keep them up to date. And, you know, people don't always notify compliance and say, by the way, I'm now taking on this as well. So there'll be an extra layer of the infrastructure required here to make sure that happens. But that's SEER. The the conduct standards are actually the piece I want to talk more about. And the problem with the conduct standards are, as a concept, it makes sense. You have this statutory body of standards that now everybody who is a CF or a PCF in the sector is required to follow. And I can understand where the CBI are coming from, as in, well, there's nothing there that should be controversial. Surely everybody is already doing this and should want to do things this. like act in the best interest. Act customers, in the best interest. Be honest. Exactly. Brings due skill. I mean, hardly controversial, as you say. Yes. Absolutely. Who's going to put their hand up and say, "No, I think that's a bad idea. I yeah. don't. I don't do that on a regular basis." But when you apply it in the employment law context, they're extremely woolly. They're very vague. They're very uncertain. And the the basic principle in employment law, when you're trying to discipline somebody for for a breach, particularly if you are looking to ultimately dismiss them, is that the standard you have set out must be very, very clear. And if it's not, well, then there's wiggle room there for the employee or their solicitor to say, well, it wasn't that clear. I thought I was doing it properly, but now you're telling me the standard is something different. So unless it's clear, I can't be dismissed. And the added risk here is a breach of the conduct standards is of itself a prescribed contravention. So now going back to the participation link that Neve talked about, the central bank can bring process against an individual for breach of one of these standards, which in practice means the end of their career. It's the same as being struck off for a solicitor or a doctor in any real sense. And we saw that in the UK. Once there was any sort of blemish in somebody's record, no regulated firm post the SMCR being introduced was willing to take that person on. So the stakes are very high here. And just to bring you through a couple of the examples of the conduct standards that I'm talking about, there's a lot of them, as you'll know, so I haven't learned them all off just yet. So let me just read from the general scheme to give you an example. There's one here that talks about being cooperative with the central bank and dealing with them in good faith and without delay. Now, that without delay bit, it's extremely dangerous. What does that mean? So if I'm a manager in a bank and I spot something that I'm not comfortable with, does that mean I have to notify the regulator that day? Do I have to go to the compliance director that day? Or is there room there for me to give somebody the benefit of the doubt and maybe ask a few questions inquire internally to see, look, this doesn't look right to me, but... Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Yeah, is what have right? I missed? Exactly. exactly. Which wouldn't be at all unusual. And in many scenarios, things that might look a little bit untoward can turn out to be perfectly legitimate. The person just doesn't have all the information. But that manager is now going to have to stop and think, well, do I have to tell the regulator now? If I don't, am I at risk of a prescribed contravention process against me? So it's driving that type of thing. There's another one here. It talks about observe proper standards of market conduct. And that's all it says. So where do you even go to find out what is the proper standards of market conduct? Because that will change year to year. That will be different in particular organizations, perhaps even in different lines of business. And it's not even that you can go to somebody in a bank or a firm or whatever it is to say, well, where's the register of standards of market conduct? It's anybody's guess. So There might be employers that will use that to their advantage. There definitely will be employees who will say, well, as far as I'm concerned, that is an appropriate conduct standard. Or will that be a dead letter? Who knows? In in that sense, the the central bank can't enforce it because nobody can define it. As an employer, you can't define it and it'll end up being kind of meaningless in in some respects. But but that's the problem. It's just such an obvious gap for an employee solicitor to say, well, 
the standards aren't clear, therefore you can't dismiss me for this. Now, in the UK, maybe this type of regime is easier to manage because they don't have the same focus on fair procedures when it comes to sanctioning an employee that we have. And likewise, they don't have the established market practice of employees going to the high court to look for an injunction to stop the employer continuing with a process. So you're applying rules that might be very similar in the UK, but the, the reality on the ground or the, the environment here is so very different that employers will find this much more difficult to, to manage the conduct standards piece. And, and what's the answer to that? I mean, is that really trying your level best to sort of flesh, to, to your point, to flesh out what these mean and, and make it clear? And then, you know, Neve mentioned sort of getting this down to the whole organisation but I guess you have to figure out what it is you're going to tell them first. And then yes. I suppose you have to train them and write it up and train them kind of quite diligently all, all right down to the at every level. Definitely. And specifically, one of the obligations on the employer is to make sure you provide sufficient training for all of the staff and bring all of these conduct standards to their attention. So from day one, the employer can even be done for a breach of it by not educating everybody on it. So for HR directors or employment lawyers working in, in firms, one of the first exercises here will be putting together the education piece to educate everybody in regard to the conduct standards so everybody fully understands it. Because really where you want to get to is a point where the employee can say, the employee won't be able to say, well, I never knew that. I never heard of yeah. that. Where, 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 when did you tell us about that? So it's going to have to be very well documented. It will have to be as clear as possible. And there's only so clear it can be here because these rules are quite woolly. But even down to documenting, having a, a, a register to show, well, Brian, Joe and Neve all attended the training on that day. So Brian won't be able to say two years later, oh, I missed that. Mm. I wasn't in that day. And the Central Bank has indicated you know, as, as part of their guidance, there'll be there'll be some further guidance on what, what this looks like. Uh, yes. But I suppose even in fairness to them, there's only so far you can go. And I think part of the, as we discussed at the outset here, I mean, part of this is is, is around individualization and that's a word from a different context but you know what I mean individualization mm. of these rules you know for each firm I mean that's mm. part of the overall thing that firms get it right for themselves so it is and part of that is the rules do allow for this defense of reasonable steps so if I'm the manager and I'm being pursued by the CBI for breach of a conduct standard my first line of defense is I took all reasonable steps sorry reasonable steps yeah. I leave out the old that's a critical point that was yeah. there before it's gone now but what we know from the UK is the managers are crying out for guidance on what is reasonable steps because I want to make sure I do everything that I'm expected of, I'm expected to do so that I have a robust defence to it. And I'm aware of one client in the UK where on a quarterly basis, they run up to date training for the managers on reasonable steps so that nobody's left in the dark as to what the current standard is on reasonable steps, pick things they're picking up from other clients in the industry, any cases coming through the regulator that might change that so everybody can be as up to speed as possible on it. And which makes sense. I'd do the same if I was a manager in mm. that position. And how far down does that go then? Um, because presumably and every, like there's team leader, manager, everybody's delegating or delegating to and, and everybody has to take reasonable steps, if you know what I mean. I presume well, it's I, all the way down. I think it'll trickle the whole way down because yeah. the conduct standards apply to all CFs and PCFs. But if the whole point of this regime is to drive culture, a lot of clients will probably expect this to be part of their culture generally. Now, there might be people who aren't CFs who the employer will expect to still maintain and, and comply with this type of standard. Yeah. It's just that they won't be at risk of a personal process from the CBI. But to uh, your point earlier, Joe, like, I mean, it's the 
technically speaking, it's the senior executive function, right? So our, our Des Brian saying, you know, it's our PCF today is the person mm. that the duty of responsibility is ascribed to. But it is the whole team. So it's, you know, you're if you're taking on that responsibility, as you said earlier on, you know, it's probably impractical to think you'll be in every detail. So you will it'll be really important for your team to know the landscape. So to Brian's point around trickling down, you know, it does actually have that effect and have that kind of clear effect because the duty responsibility, two out of the three criteria, so other than the reasonableness criteria, are actually matter of fact. The firm you know, committed or continue to commit a prescribed contravention at the time and the person exercising the senior executive function was in charge of the area where the prescribed contravention. So there, matter of fact, yes or no. So the liability then attaches when the question of whether the SEF actually was reasonable or not or took reasonable steps or not. So for that to be developed, you can't actually just look at the individual. So if you're thinking about it from an organisational perspective, you want that architecture in there to support the SEF in, in performing the their senior executive The senior executive function, function yeah. yeah. SEF, which is the same as PCF really, or they're likely to be interchangeable, yeah. So I, I guess it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to see, see that's where the, the real implementation challenge will be, those implementation challenges. So on one level, the kind of responsibility statement, responsibility map, it, it's work, but it's not probably rocket science, if you like. It's not uh, impossible. It's not impossible. Mm. I, I, it does seem that you're turning that what does reasonable steps mean and how do we all agree what they are in our organisation, in our department, in our business line? What does that mean for us in our industry, industry sector? How do we agree that amongst ourselves? How do we communicate that amongst our team? To your point, how do we refresh that regularly so we're all signed up to it? How do we deal with new joiners and that kind of stuff? They'll all be real like implementation challenges, if you like. And, and to your point, both of your points, in fact, around starting early, there's a bit of a gap there in that one because we, because we don't have the central bank guidance yet. We won't have it until well after legislation is, is or certainly after legislation is finalised. I don't think so. That's going to be an impediment to doing a lot now. If you know what I mean, you can do you can do. Well, there you can are there are things employers can do now. Yeah. So preparing the education piece so that it, it's ready to go once we have the final detail. That's one thing. I think they can start on the project of identifying what documentation they will require to create and will need to revise. And we've talked about this before. So. In terms of new documents that you don't currently have that you will have in two or three years time, the statements of responsibility and the responsibility maps are actually the only two new documents that the regime will expressly require you to have. But there is a huge body of existing documentation already in place that will need to be revised to build in the conduct standards. And, and really what I'm talking about there is not just the contract. A lot of employers are just focused on the contract, but there's so much more to it. It's all of the HR policies. It's the bonus scheme, it's the promotion guidelines, it's it's all of that because they need to now reflect the conduct standards so that any employee whoever reads the bonus scheme will see if I don't comply with the conduct standards, well, then I may not get a bonus or my bonus can be clawed back. Or if they ever look at the promotion guidelines, they will understand the conduct standards are a key part of this. And if you're somebody who is a, a top performer sales wise, but you don't comply with the conduct standards, well, then you're not going to be promoted in this organization. And the example I think we gave to a client once was the job descriptions aren't going to change the culture here. What really drives and changes culture is the first time that somebody is dismissed for breaching a new standard or the first time that somebody has had their bonus cut in half for breaching a standard that they thought was, well, we're not that serious about it. And that's when people realise that cultural change has arrived. And from your sort of um, employment law perspective, is there, is there, is there anything not in it that you're expecting? Or are there any surprises? Um, yeah, the main surprise is the regulatory reference piece. Which is what? So in the UK, uh, and all expectations are 
that our model will broadly mirror the UK one. They had this feature whereby any employer that was looking to hire an individual into a regulated role would have to obtain a clean bill of health, so to speak, on their fitness and probity. So a regulatory reference from all previous employers over the past six years leading up to the new role. And that worked very well in driving standards of performance and conduct, but it was a huge burden on employers in terms of keeping the paperwork in, in order. And, and to be clear, it's not just that Joe worked from A, X to no, Y no. and did this job. It's a very prescribed a form of words and there's nothing I need to know or Joe, there's, there's no black mark against Joe and there's nothing, there's no cloud over yes, Joe really. It's it, it very was prescribed. A, it was a statutory questionnaire. So there was no way of ducking and diving around it. If you wanted to move somebody on, but you didn't feel comfortable giving them a clean bill of health, it was very well designed, almost like a warranty to flush out whether there were any issues. But what it meant in practice was in order for an employer to be able to answer that question factually and correctly and lawfully without the risk of defamation claims or whatever, the employers reached a point where they would have to investigate every allegation right through to a conclusion, irrespective of whether the employee was still there or not. So you had scenarios where somebody left two years ago, but something came up, they were having to investigate it, even though the employee was long gone. So it also meant in practice, it became a lot more difficult to use the, the voluntary exit route with an employee. So the employee wouldn't be going quietly because they knew the allegation was going to be investigated whether they stayed or not. And in circumstances like this, where your future employability depended on a clean record, they were staying on and fighting tooth and nail. So this was probably one of the elements that we identified in the UK regime that was most concerning here. And if you look at how well it underpinned the UK regime, I was fairly confident that the CBI would want to include it here. But the difficulty we would have had was, as I mentioned before, there's such a heightened focus on fair procedures here. And because we do have the, the avenue of high court injunctions to stop an employer reaching a conclusion if they're breaching your right to fair procedures, it would have been much more problematic for employers to deal with here. It does, it does feel like I could see how policymakers decided to drop it. It sounds like a good idea in practice, but it's a bit of a lawyer's charter, isn't it? Like, I mean, yes. the moment there's, uh, and we're all lawyers and all that, like, but I mean, the reality is, I think the minute there's anything, everyone's going to run into the lawyer and everyone's going to run into the high court and, and it would have been a nightmare. And that would have been much more problematic. Yeah. And I, I think we had understood from an early stage that the, the department itself was struggling with how to balance what was a good idea with the actual environment that we operate in. And, and it looks like the practical solution was, let's just not do it now. Okay, very interesting. I've moved the conversation sort of, if you like, down deep into the organisation to every level, entry level, if you like, and, and all the way up. Maybe, Neve, would you mind maybe just thinking about sort of up and out? Because the question might be, are INEDs included? Or is my boss in London or New York included? Or how might that work, if you like? And <laughs> um, so outside of the, the Irish sub, if you know what I mean, or, or around it, so, so to speak. Yeah, again, that's a question that we that we often get asked, right? And does it now, you know, it, it brings in unregulated entities as well in some instances, right? So if you have an unregulated holding company, for example, uh, they can now be captured within within the structure. A couple of practical points first, Joe, which is that, you know, there is a question about branches. So it seems to be clear enough now that, you know, EU branches coming in won't be captured, but the third country branches will. So that's one that has to, you know, welcome clarification and one that will kind of give us a, a bit of a clearer picture as to the application there. There is, of course, then a question in respect of directors, right? So I think probably what's helpful here is, is that there's reasonably well-trodden ground in terms of PCF responsibilities and where you have to get that that clearance from the central bank. So that framework, if you like, or that scope remains the same. 
But the question then is, okay, well, I have a lot more now to deal with under my headings. And you're right, we have talked, I suppose, in the last couple of minutes a lot about bottom up, but there is an exercise to do within the board and also within the senior management team to say, actually, you know, SEER does in particular speak to a lot of responsibilities that we now have. So if I am, you know, the chair, if I am, as you say, the CFO, I probably need to sit down, have a think, say, well, if this responsibility applies to me tomorrow, conduct standards, duty of responsibility and all that goes with that, how would I fulfill that role? How would we as a board ensure that we get happy that we are discharging our existing duties and our existing requirements, but also that we are empowering and enabling our key people in senior management team to exercise and to fulfill their obligations under the bill. So that's quite important. And in this scenario where you have, you know, an Irish subsidiary of a global firm, this regime does not exist in all countries. So there is, I feel like, a communications piece of work that needs to be done to say, look, the legal entity in Ireland needs to comply with the responsibilities in the individual accountability framework and what they need to do in order to demonstrate that effectively, not just to the regulator, but also to the expectations that the market will have of them here, that actually these are the conduct standards these regulated firms apply. So you will have, if you like, client and counterparty expectations as well. So, you know, explaining the delta between the regime in Canada or the regime in the US to senior executives there versus Ireland is going to be a really, really important piece for the for the board and the senior management to actually start communicating now. And the resourcing is going to, to need to be looked at because, again, you know, a lot of the global firms organise globally. Mm. So, you know, the very fact of individual accountability or the looking at the classification of the allocation of responsibilities to meet the IAF, you could have a very different organisational model in Ireland than what is currently contemplated globally, where centres of excellence or centres of expertise are organised and they report on their dotted line into the global chain. So that's actually something that, as I say, from your up and out perspective, boards and senior managers should be speaking to other group entities or group parents about at this stage. And given that they'll all be quite senior, there'll be quite sensitive discussions, I should imagine, when that happens and that'll be, have to be handled carefully, yeah, yeah. for sure. So thanks very much, Brian and Neve. I think that was a really interesting walkthrough of the bill that's hot off the press, albeit is waiting, waiting for a long time for it. This individual accountability framework is clearly broad. It has different elements. It has the SEER, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, which is very important for those that are affected by it. But it has broader standards. So I think the, the SEER regime, the central bank is indicated, will affect around 150 firms but the new common standards will affect all firms. So there is a, a staggering of implementation. Uh, we talked about this coming in, the, the SEER regime, and the whole thing, the SEER in particular coming in sort of in the course of next year, summer, autumn, but the conduct standards will apply to everyone from that time. So it, there's something for, for everyone here. We can see obviously that it's going to affect the whole organisation. That's the intention. So it's not just a compliance project. It's not just an ops project. As I said, it's not just a compliance project. It really has to be a, a CEO level led project. And indeed, I'd be surprised slash astonished if the central bank didn't prescribe as one of those prescribed functions compliance with this IAF regime on somebody. And that's likely to be, I guess, the, the, the CEO, if you like. So somebody's going to have to be individually accountable for this regime to be applied. And it's the implementation, the challenges are you know, many and varied. And there'll be a level which will be board level. There'll be a level which will be senior management level. That's kind of senior executive team level. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? How are we going to organise ourselves? And then there'll be a write down to every nook and cranny of the organisation in terms of challenges to implement, particularly the conduct standards that everyone will have to grapple with. And then there'll be how to deal with my boss or my boss's boss. 
how that interacts with everybody, indeed, how we might interact with clients. I think it's clear there is an enforcement background here. Hopefully, the central bank have indicated that it's their really focus is to get this thing in and done properly, and their their focus will be one of a supervisory one for the first while, which is great. We just have to wait and see whether they can really resist the temptation to get stuck in. I, my jury's out on that one, in my expect, in terms of things I've seen in our own practice. But hopefully, we'll hold them to that, take their word for it. So I think it's obviously, as we said at the start, everyone looks out, what are the projects we have to do? Is this a this year project, a next year project? There's no doubt that this is a big project for certainly the latter part of this year, next year, and the next couple of years after that. For everybody, for every firm, not just the 150 that are directly affected by SEER, but every firm in terms of the, the common standards. And as it's just hot off the press, this is the first podcast discussing it. We will have another one lined up with partner colleague Karen Reynolds, uh, from the litigation side, who really who has a lot of experience in enforcement. And even though, as I said, it's not supposed to be just about enforcement, it is useful to talk about that as much because we see through the enforcement process, the supervisor's expectations because they enforce when their expectations are not met. So by going through enforcement processes, we understand that and can, and can share that. I think Karen will offer some very valuable insights in that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. For more information or if you have any queries, please contact either Joe Bieschel at joe.bieschel, that's B-E-A-S-H-E-L, at matheson.com, Neve Mulholland at neve.mulholland at matheson.com, or Brian Dunn at brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot Dunn at matheson.com.